Go ahead and open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. I've been doing, I continue to remind us that we are traveling with the Israelites who have been redeemed out of Egypt by the mighty arm and outstretched hand of their Lord, and that these Israelites have begun their new life of freedom as subjects of the Lord, and it's here, or uh, yet it's here we find that they have met, are met in the wilderness, as they have traveled through a portion of it, they have come to the wilderness of Sinai and have now come to the mountain of God. And it's here where the Lord is continuing to bring them uh, from a community of people into a nation unto God. And we come now to the covenant ceremony at Sinai, where these previously nomadic then enslaved people are brought into covenant bonds with the great promiser of Genesis 3, the maker of heaven and earth. And it is a turning point as of such in uh, this book, because they don't get much farther from here uh, than they are now. So there is a coming to Sinai, and now there is a time at Sinai. In our current section, it comes from Exodus 19 through Exodus 24. This morning we'll just uh, approach Exodus 19 together, and I'll be reading that for us in a whole as it help, provides helpful context and uh, narration of the events that are significant for us this morning. Follow along as I read for us Exodus 19, verses 1 through 25. Hear the word of the Lord. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and I, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you would indeed obey my voice, and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded them. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you, and may also believe in you forever. And Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people, and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him. 
but he shall surely be stoned or shot through, whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrate, consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again, you and Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Certainly, let's go to him for help one more time this morning. Oh Lord, we give you praise that you have given us this word this morning, revealing to us the mysteries of Christ within it. Oh Lord, that we would see these mysteries and wonder at your grace and kindness to us in Christ. And we would be encouraged this morning that your holiness and your justice has been satisfied. And we may approach with holy boldness to your throne of grace. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we will join in the divine author's intention of revealing to us the mysteries of Christ contained in type and shadow within the Old Testament as a testimony to us that Christ, as the scope of Scripture, is the referent point of all the history of the church and even of this age as a whole. And so in this chapter we will see that the church is the new Israel and all the promises to the to that Israel of old find meaning and fulfillment in the church. And as such, it is to proclaim the excellencies of that redemption, of that reconciliation that Christ our King has won for us. And this frees us to not love the world, nor the things of this world. So out of its literal understanding, and with help from the divine author and subsequent revelation, we have our foundation to see its anticipatory character. 
You know, uh, one of the things I was thinking about this week as I was reading and studying this is the idea of Easter eggs in movies. I don't know if you've ever watched movies and then maybe watched videos after or maybe during the movie you caught it, but uh, oftentimes in movies that have either ongoing sequels or prequels or anything like that is that there will be things deposited within that movie that reference either future movies past movies or movies also done by the same production company, director, writer, all these things related to it. And oftentimes when they're revealed to you, there's an aha moment where it was right in front of you and you never saw it until somebody showed it to you. And it is what we have before us in very small illustration, an Easter egg or Easter eggs of sorts. But we come not with our own imagination, we come with the uh, revelation of the divine director, the divine author, the divine production company, if you will, who has shown us what these things are to reveal to us, and what these things reveal to the original hearers in type and shadow, which now re are revealed to us in substance in Christ. And so we do approach this with that mindset because we have a sure foundation that the Lord is, is revealing this in his word. And part of the anticipatory character of it, we find that there is a necessary, a necessary pointing towards a greater understanding. John Owen speaks to this in his commentary. He says, God was here represented in all the outward demonstrations of infinite holiness, justice, severity, and terrible majesty on the one hand. And on the other, men in their lowest condition of sin, misery, guilt, and death. If there be not therefore something else to interpose between God and men, somewhat to fill up the space between infinite severity and inexpressible guilt... All this glorious preparation was nothing but a theater set up for the pronouncing of judgment and the sentence of eternal condemnation against sinners. What we have here in the covenant at Sinai is ultimately a pronouncement of judgment and the sentence of eternal condemnation against sinners. For what we have in Sinai is the law. We do not have the gospel. The law says, do this and live. Here in, on Sinai, we, the Lord says, only keep my commandment or keep my covenant. Obey my voice and keep my covenant. Then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples. For all the earth is mine. So it's very clear the covenant stipulations of the Mosaic covenant is one of law. It's one of keeping, and it harkens back to the first covenant, or the covenant of works in the garden, where Adam was directed to keep the garden. He was directed to keep the covenant. We recognize that the covenant of work condemns and curses mankind. We see in subsequent covenants like the Noahic covenant was given to preserve mankind for the sake of the fulfillment of God's purposes. 
And even further on, we have the Abrahamic covenant, a covenant that uh, promised the forgiveness of sins, or promised a covenant that would forgive sins, yet not in and of itself provided that forgiveness. And so a covenant that forgives sins is better than a covenant that promises a covenant that will forgive sins. And all this serves as a foundation, and very referentially, the Abrahamic covenant immediately sets as a foundation for the Mosaic covenant that we have in Exodus 19 through 24. It serves as, as the foundation, the covenant interest of Israel after the flesh was de derived from Abraham. The functionality of the Abrahamic covenant is to bring about the church state nation of Israel for Abraham's covenant is foundational to the Mosaic. As a covenantal foundation, we find in the scriptures, subsequent covenants are made with the same parties, Abraham's offspring, in the same kingdom realm, Canaan, with the same promises, blessed life in Canaan, with the same precepts, positive laws, and the same penalties, disinheritance. Therefore, what is commonly known as the Old Covenant began with Abraham and ought to be viewed collectively in such a way that the Old Covenant includes the Abrahamic Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, and the a future, from our standpoint here in Exodus 19, the Davidic Covenant. So we find that within these covenants, there is a revelation and a further revealing of the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace was more fully revealed to Abraham compared to Adam. But the formal covenant which God established with Abraham was not the covenant of grace. The Mosaic covenant is the development of the Abrahamic covenant in which he would fulfill nationally to Abraham's descendants in the Mosaic to Abraham's descendants. In the Mosaic Covenant, God declares blessings he intended to pour out on Israel, but for the Israelites to enjoy the blessings, they must keep the covenant. They must keep the law. And so, even amongst our uh, Presbyterian and other Reformed brothers and sisters, there are some that recognize the Mosaic Covenant as a works-based covenant. And we agree with them, and we see that, as we will see, this set-apartness of the Abrahamic, or the contrastness that the scriptures make between specifically the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. But as we see the continuity between Abraham and Moses, we see that they are referencing one and of the same. And so we'll look at this first in its elements, and then we'll will see its revelation. So first in its elements, we see that this covenant was uh, takes place on the third month. It's in our opening verse. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. So here they left on the day after Passover, in the middle of the first month. The 15th day after Passover would have fallen within this third month. And it's understood that this is the third month or the 50th day. And it's further understood that Pentecost has a referential to this giving of the law on Sinai. 
Pentecost, or the Feast of Weeks, is more exactly the Feast of Seven Weeks. For beginning on the day after Passover, the 16th of Nisan, the Israelites counted 49 days, then commenced the celebration of the Feast of Weeks on the following day, because it fell on the 50th day after Passover. It was also called Pentecost, that is, 50th. And so we see in this first detail that the timing of the giving of this covenant was not uh, irrational and was not... Um, it didn't just by happenstance. The Lord intended that it would come on the 50th day. The Lord, again, was laying down anticipatory tracks for His future revelation, specifically revelation in Christ. And so here, as the Israelites would look back and celebrate the Feast of Weeks, which was also coupled with um, a harvest uh, festival was also referenced to the giving of the law here on Sinai. And so there's a reference to this third month that we would take uh, attention to the timing of this covenant. The next thing we see that in this covenant it constituted an elect people. And when I say elect people, I mean a set-apart people, a specifically chosen people, not the elect doctrinally, but unelect people that God has chosen specifically for himself, for his own purpose. Israel as a covenant community will be made into a kingdom. Prior to this time, the idea of the people of God as a kingdom or a nation was merely a promise to the patriarchs. Now, in the Mosaic age, that promise will come to fruition. So here we have the Lord promising that he would make them into a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These words given to the Israelites in covenant with them are a promise that he would fulfill what he had promised to Abraham. That out of him nations would come, and specifically that there would become an offspring, and out of that offspring there would be the blessing to all nations. Well, that comes through Israel, and so Israel is formed here on Sinai, constituted an elect people. The next thing we see is that there is the location. We have the timing, we have the people, and now we have the location. This uh, covenant was not given in a valley. It was not given at the Red Sea. Certainly not given in Egypt. It was not given once they entered Canaan, but it was given here on a mountain. And this specific mountain of God is described as Horeb or Sinai. It references back to the place where the Lord visited Moses in Exodus chapter 3 and revealed himself as uh, the bush, the burning bush. We find it other reference in the place where Abraham traveled. And it was the place, uh, or near this place, where Abraham would have offered up Isaac. And so this mountain was a, a very specific mountain. It's, it's given the possessive, it's the mountain of God. It's God's mountain. This is to show how high the Lord's rule is. It was an earthly throne of Yahweh. 
It was on the top of a high mountain, not in a plain, as this had a great appearance of the throne of majesty. Now the Lord would not keep this mountain as his throne, but he would signify that as I give you instructions from my earthly throne, this mountain now, co-located here on Sinai, so you will take that earthly throne with you when he gives them the instructions for the tabernacle. For we'll see that in the uh, mercy seat, or the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat, the lid of it, will be referenced as the Lord's footstool. It will be the base of his throne. And so here we find it first exists as a mountain. And so it is given, this covenant is given on the mountain. So we have this place, or the timing of it. We have the people of it. We have the place of it. Now we have the events of it. The Lord descends on this mountain, and the Lord descends in a very uh, revealing way. A very, if, if we were to just look at this as a, as a storybook, if this was just a telling of the story, the theatrics don't get quite as intense as this in the Old Testament. The Lord descends in thunder and lightning and smoke and in fire, and in quaking of, of the ground. This is all referenced to the Lord and His presence. If, we, if, I tur if I read for you Deuteronomy 4, we see this referenced here in 4.24. You said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us, that's Deuteronomy 5, Deuteronomy 4, Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We find that this reference to the Lord being a consuming fire and a jealous God is represented in all these showings, and all, the, all this theophany of the Lord here on Sinai. The jealousy of God is His holy severity against sin not to leave it unpunished. As the great lawgiver, God is also the great judge. So Sinai has its place, and the Lord descending, and it is the throne of God, it is the throne of the great lawgiver, and the great judge. And how does the Lord come in this theophany? He comes in thunder and lightning. He comes in what brings terror to those at its base. For they sense the majesty and the holiness of a God who His very presence produces such things. It was also, as the Lord comes, it's signaled. He signals His coming by the sound of trumpets. It was to summon the people to an appearance before him. It was to summon the people to an appearance before him as their lawgiver and judge. It was the outward sign of the promulgation of the law with the sanction of it. For immediately upon the sound of the trumpet, God spoke unto them. Owen commenting again says, Under this dreadful summons of the law, the gospel finds us. 
which exceedingly exalts the glory of the grace of God and of the blood of Christ and the conscience of believers, as the Apostle declares at large. So under this dreadful summons of the law, or the first in Sinai first we find a dreadful summoning of the law. And it's only under that dreadful summoning of the law that the gospel finds us. But here in this covenant, the Lord in all his dealings in this covenant is displaying himself in a way that reflects his holiness and his majesty in his law. And so there is thundering and lightning, smoke and fire and quaking of the ground. It can't be missed in this. Because, as we will see, the author of the Hebrew uses all these details to contrast the old covenant and the new. To contrast the law and the gospel. Well, I should use the same hands. The law and the gospel. Do this and live. Believe. Have life. We see that as it relates to Sinai and what is provided to the Israelites was not um, something that they should have rejected. I will say that I have a foggy memory of saying such a thing before in other, in other teachings. I don't think I've said it before you, but I've said it before other people, is that it's possible that the Israelites should never have accepted such a deal. They should have said, no, we're too sinful, we can't accept this covenant. Yet scripture is clear that in this covenant they were furthered in their standing. Because they went from not a people to a people. They went from a people not unto the Lord to a people unto the Lord. So they're accepting of this covenant, first of all, a divine covenant, a divine imposition upon them was, was a good thing. And yet it was a good thing as it was to their temporal standing in, related, in relation to their current landless place and nationless existence. But they would be provided a land and they would be formed into a nation. And yet we know that that is good also as it carries along the covenant, the promise of the covenant of grace. Whereby through this the Lord would give oracles and teachings. And in showing them in type and shadow what he was to do ultimately in Christ. So we must see Sinai in this way. And, it, and we must see it in this way because scripture tells us so. Let's look at these elements now in light of Christ. Let's look at see how Scripture takes what the Lord has done. As, let's see how the Lord takes what the Lord has done and shows what he was doing. Now in the fullness of time. Now in the revelation of the mysteries of Christ. Let's first look at the timing. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. 
the disciples were directed by the Lord to go and wait and pray. And he would visit them again. And so we find them here in Acts 2.1, when the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven like a noise, uh, excuse me, came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind. And it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? We see here God's intention of setting apart that first, that, that old covenant on the 50th day, which becomes the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost. He sets it apart to show them that he will do a like thing in a greater way at a future time. And that time comes after Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and now ascension. For when Christ dwelled among them, it says he tabernacled with them in John. That means... That which was signified in the tabernacle walked with man during his earthly ministry. Yet it was for him to die and then to be buried and then to be raised and then to be taken up. And we know that the apostles, like men, when he was taken up, stood and stared in the sky. And we could think with them that they were thinking, what now? They were directed to go and wait, and as they waited, the Lord visited them in a very similar fashion that he visited the Israelites on Sinai. Chad Bird observes that if the Old Testament Pentecost was an annual celebration of the giving of, of the covenant, of, of the Mosaic covenant, or of the law, then the New Testament Pentecost is an annual celebration of the giving of the New Covenant. The New Covenant was prophesied by Jeremiah, established by Jesus at the Last Supper, and preached by the apostles at the pouring out of the Spirit. Christ laid upon the listeners not the ten words for them to fulfill, rather he proclaimed the fulfillment of the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms in himself. What does Peter get up and speak? He, he gets up and speaks, and he speaks about the prophet Joel, and he speaks out of the Psalms. 
And he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Why? Because the lawgiver has become the law fulfiller. The judge stood as the defendant. We see that the timing of the giving of the Mosaic Covenant was one of anticipation that God would visit again his people in the same picture so that they would know that in him visiting he would be giving to them something new. These events, as I said, were recorded here in our Old Testament for our instruction and it is by the divine author's inspiration that we have Hebrews chapter 12. Turn with me there. Hebrews 12 and verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and to the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Here we recognize that in these events that we read in Exodus 19, the Lord was providing for the church a beautiful picture of contrast to what he gives to us in Christ. What he was tutoring that concealed church in the Old Testament through the Mosaic Covenant, he now gives us the teacher's manual in the new. He gives us the answers. That we receive a deliverance from the terror and curse of the law. That which was signified in the Old Covenant is now fulfilled in the new. But you have come to Mount Zion. We don't come to the law. We come to the mountain, the heavenly mountain of God, the city of the living God, this heavenly Jerusalem, and to the hosts of heaven, 
and to all those who are a part of the body, who are the church of the firstborn. And we don't come to this mountain that can't be touched. For we have given the sacraments of the Lamb. We're able to enter into the water. We're able to fill it, wash over us, and unknow by this outward washing as we went over in the Orthodox Catechism. As the outward washing surely washes our bodies, so does the Spirit wash us clean that our sins have been forgiven. And we have given the Lord's table for us to touch and feel and taste and see that which is provided in the gospel. That these events would be for us this grand display that we, what have you been delivered from? This terror and trembling and fear-inducing as a mountain covered in smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and earthquakes is. So is our relationship in our old man to the law, for it condemns us completely. Yet not so in the gospel as Owen observed earlier. Under the dreadful summons of the law, the gospel finds us, which exceedingly exalts the glory of the grace and God, grace of God and the blood of Christ. And the consciences of believers as we read in subsequent revelation. What are the effects then of this change? What are the effects of this satisfaction? We see that in Hebrews 28. Because he says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Has God changed? May it never be. But as our Relationship Has God brought us into a new relationship? Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We've not given an earthly kingdom which can be shaken, which can be invaded, which can be overturned. We've been, in a king, we've been given a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The gospel in the church age being so much more excellent than that of the old. God himself being in it in a more glorious and excellent manner. We ought to endeavor a more eminent sanctification and preparation in all our approaches unto God therein. What the author of Hebrews is saying, if there was reverence and awe in that theophany, at Sinai. How much more reverence and awe ought there be that God has assumed human flesh and has come and lived the life that we could never live and offers us 
his righteousness through faith. And even more so, he offers us forgiveness of all our past, present, and future impurities and corruptions. So that by the assuredness of his sacrifice, we know one day we will exist free from all the presence of sin. An unshakable kingdom. Further, we see the Apostle Peter, who speaks of similar things in his epistle in 1 Peter 2. He says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possessions. What are the effects? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Consider the Apostle John's words where he says that those who are of the Lord, those who are of the Father, cannot love this world nor the things of this world. Why? Because we've been freed from it. We are sojourners. We are aliens now in it. We are not slaves of unrighteousness. We are not condemned in the law. He says, act as free men in verse 16. And do not use your freedom as covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Brothers and sisters, we have come to a better mountain. We're being, we have been formed into a better people. Where we have a better mediator. And surely we will one day reign in a better kingdom. As we have that now in the church. The church is the new Israel. And all the promises to the Israel of old find meaning and fulfillment in the church. And as such is to proclaim the excellencies of that redemption, of that reconciliation that Christ our King has won for us. And this frees us to not love the world, nor the things of this world. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do give you praise for these wondrous, wondrous things of your grace and mercy to us. And the effects of that grace and mercy in bringing many sons and daughters to glory unworthy, unworthy, unworthy of your grace. Oh Lord, may these excellencies be so near on our minds that as we will surely struggle in this world. We will surely fight against indwelling sin. We will surely deal with the effects of the fall and certainly even wage war against spiritual forces. 
that we do so in the knowledge that our king has put his foot on the necks of our enemies in his death. And we are assured victory in him. Oh Lord, may this draw us away from being lovers of the world and to be lovers of God. By your grace, by your spirit, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.